Welcome to the Insider's Guide to Finance, where we dive into stories from the front lines of financing public and private companies. I host seasoned CEOs, fund managers, bankers, brokers, and business experts who will answer your questions about how to properly engage investors, finance opportunities, and build outstanding success stories. We dig into the educational how-tos and mechanics of structuring good deals. You'll also hear about strokes of luck, tense negotiations, and the pressures of closing, while also getting insights on how to best navigate the public markets. Welcome back to the Insider's Guide to Finance. In today's episode, we're doing something a little bit different. We're interviewing Chris Baker, CEO of Avanti Energy, not about financing and company building, but about the burgeoning opportunity in helium exploration, development, and production. As for a lot of us, we don't realize the importance of helium in industrial and technological applications. What we're missing is that it's a finite resource that is being made even more scarce by increasing demand and a reduction in supply. Add to this, the main reserve of helium, the US Federal Helium Reserve, is now set to shut down in 2021, leaving scientists and exploration entrepreneurs to find new reserves. Chris walks us through the ins and outs of the helium industry, from where it's found to where it's used, and even the metrics and measurements that a diligent eye looks for when comparing helium producers. He also highlighted a critical yet lesser known fact about non-renewable gas and its geopolitical importance. Be sure to listen as Chris gives some great insights on a very interesting and early stage industry. And before we get started, I'm happy to host this episode with the support of Olympia Trust Company. Olympia is an outstanding provider of transfer agent and corporate trustee services and has been supporting the Canadian capital markets for well over 20 years. I can speak from experience that the team strives to deliver on their promise of making it personal. So thanks again to the team at Olympia Trust Company, and I encourage you to reach out to them anytime. You can find their contact information in the show notes. Now, enjoy the show. Chris, welcome to the show. Thanks, Corey. Pleasure to be here. I was looking forward to this interview because uh, it's taken a tangent from where we usually go, but the industry of helium and the what seems like a market opportunity that's heating up there has sparked my interest. So that's what brings us together. And you are clearly in this industry and know a lot about it and have a lot of background. So can we start with you giving us some some of your career history and and what brought you into the world of helium exploration? Yeah, for sure. So I'm a 20 plus year oil and gas guy. Prior to that, I was an economist. So that kind of frames how I approach things a little bit. Uh, okay. Then I went to oil and gas and went into the land world and did quite a bit of that for years, working uh, all over the place, lived up north uh, for a number of years, working land up there, and eventually came down to Calgary and worked land here. And then um, took a bit of a pivot in my career and went into the commercial services world for uh, one of the major oil and gas companies in town. And that that involved doing the the contractual aspects of uh, gas plant construction. Hmm. So we built a billion cubic feet worth of gas gas processing up in the Montney. Hmm. And um, you know there was a obviously a fairly involved contractual aspect to that development and, and administration of that contract. And so these were three very big plants that were owned and financed by a third party and then operated and constructed by our company. 
And uh, that was kind of my background before uh, moving into the helium world. Helium is something that I think for for the layman, I mean, it's it makes you talk funny. I know that's yeah. like it's such a silly analogy, but I think for the most most people just look and they would never consider that there's some very critical uses for for this gas and this non renewable resource, and and that's what sparked my interest is that we're seeing these shortages come about. Explain to us what's going on in the world of helium and, and why this this kind of nascent opportunity is really starting to come about. I kind of came across helium about five years ago, and that's when I started digging into it a little bit. And I was surprised as well, you know, how, how many industrial uses there are for it beyond, you know, beyond the obvious balloon industry that we always hear about. MRIs are the biggest consumer of helium. So the, the, the electronics and the magnets that are in MRI imaging machine have to be cooled to almost absolute zero. So helium turns into a liquid at something like minus 262 Celsius. And uh, that helium bath allows those, those magnets to operate. Mm. And without that, without that cold temperature, the electronics don't work in there. You know, other other things about helium. So the, the key aspects of helium are that it's inert, doesn't like to stick with stick to or bond with other chemicals or anything like that or other compounds. It's non-combustible. It has that very low uh, liquefaction point that I was talking about. And when you really get down to it, what it's good for is purging the atmosphere out of things, checking for leaks and making things really, really cold. That's kind mm-hmm. of the basics. On the, on the high-tech side of things, which I found really interesting, is that semiconductors are, they use helium in a couple different steps in the, in the manufacturing of semiconductors. Fiber optic cables are done in a helium environment because they can't be done in an atmosphere. One of the guys I, I know from my, from my youth, he's involved in the restarting of uh, nuclear facilities, and they use a okay. ton of helium to restart them, to check, for, to purge, purge test, and, and check for leaks before they restart nuclear facilities. And so... NASA huh. is one of the biggest buyers. SpaceX is a big buyer. It's it's fascinating, really, that all yeah, these things. No kidding, work. Eh? When you think of how many aspects of your life between healthcare and high tech, how many things have some connection to helium? It, it's always kind of fascinated me. From uh, knowing zero to knowing this has been uh, been a great journey for me. Is there really not any great substitutes for this? Is it the kind of thing that there's just nothing that is is comparable? That's exactly that's exactly it. You know, it's 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 about the coldest temperature required to get a, to get anything to uh, move to that phase, I guess the the liquid phase, so it, it can bring things down to the coldest temperature. And there's really nothing that is smaller than it except hydrogen, but hydrogen has its explosive properties or its combustion mm. properties, right? And so you don't want to be, you know, using those in a lot of manufacturing. Yeah, yeah wrapping it around a, thing, right? yeah, a rocket while it's going to space. That's not yeah, help. yeah. So it's 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 kind of. Um, you know, I always, I always joke about uh, the Hindenburg, but you know, the, back in the day, yeah, the U.S. advantage was that it had blimps with helium, and the Germans in, you know, in around World War One had dirigibles with hydrogen, and uh, you know, you can, you know, we oh the humanity pictures, oh the humanity, <laughs> exactly. right? So huh. we we joke a lot about the cover of Led Zeppelin too for uh, for comparison, right? With okay, the, yeah. You know, a lot of different resources out there get measured, and you know, what what, what are the metrics of of how is helium measured and, and sold? Is it the kind of thing where you sell it by the cubic foot, and and where does it trade? Yeah, cubic feet or, or thousand cubic feet, very similar to natural gas. So, uh, you know, as, as we talk here, you might hear me mention MCF. That's thousand cubic feet, and that's that's typically the uh, that or cubic meters. 
is typically the unit of trade. And the, the price environment is a little different than natural gas. It's, uh, it's generally a lot of bilateral contracts. And so the, there isn't as much pricing clarity as you'll see in natural gas. There's no NYMEX exchange for helium or something like that. Right. So there's a little, little opacity in that, in that area. But generally you'll hear, you'll hear contracts being discussed in terms of price per thousand cubic feet, usually okay. in US dollars. Yeah. And where, where is it like, where's pricing being and where, you know, where are some of the, the forecasts of where could it go? Yeah. So it's, there's a couple of, couple aspects to it. So historically it was fairly flat up until about 2015 to 2018, 2015, 2018, there was a real kind of the literal hockey stick in pricing. So it went from the hundred ish dollars per us per thousand cubic feet. It jumped up to in the 280. Mm. range which is pretty dramatic price increase and that captured a lot of people's attention and since then it's been fairly steady at that at that level from what we hear so i guess in 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 my world price reflects everything Mm -hmm. um you know so when you find a a supply demand imbalance when you see a, a price spike like that that signals the the imbalance since then things have been steady at that point so i i think we're in balance at the moment but there's a there's a critical change coming to the industry as well. So back in, as I mentioned before, with the the the, the comment about World War One, the U.S. set up a strategic helium reserve, very similar to the National Oil Strategic Oil Reserve in the states. Okay. They have a, they have a large cavern and, and storage facility down there where they store helium. And a few years ago, they looked at the economics of that and decided to shut it down and promote more more uh, exploration in the industry. And so that is in blowdown mode now. And so what that means to us is that it was sort of a price cushion in a way. So when when buyers didn't see the prices that they liked in the market, they could always go to the Bureau of Land Management and buy from this from the reserve. Hmm. As that is removed, you know, we see probably more price volatility to the upside going forward. Hmm. So uh, we're pretty optimistic. It's it's a very economic, very profitable business right now, and and uh, we think there's there's a lot more upside to it as we go forward. And so so effectively, the the U.S. reserve that they've had, it they're starting to intentionally diminish that. Yes. And I mean, will there be there will always be a reserve there, or this is the kind of thing that they're just going to put it out to the free market and encourage? you know exactly exploration and development of more helium projects that's exactly it It, it's it's one of those situations where high prices cure high high prices in a way where okay you know we're we're going to get the price signals from the market of what what helium's actually worth without this uh plan b for the buyers and yeah that's what's really driving a lot of exploration at this point okay yeah like no safety net then exactly when you hit a reservoir how do you know you've you're actually pulling helium so we'll do a bottle test, basically. So they'll, they'll take samples of the gas that flows out of that reservoir. And uh, they'll do some analysis at the well or at the uh, drilling rig at the time, and but mostly it goes to a lab. And they'll come back with an analysis and tell us what concentration of helium is there. Economic helium results could be as low as perhaps 0.3%, all the way up to 2, 2 and a quarter percent would be quite good. What, what matters is there's a number of pieces to the puzzle. And so you need a concentration of helium. You need a good flow rate. You need a lot of porosity and permeability in the re- reservoir. And you need a sizable reservoir. Right. And, and, and I'm just trying to think through this as like the concentration there, but then the porosity of, of the actual reservoir for the, the gas to escape. Yes. 
Yeah, yeah. exactly. Exactly. Yeah. So for example, you know, you may see someone put out a headline, they have a very high concentration of helium, but if it doesn't have the right pressure and it doesn't have a large reservoir, it doesn't really matter. You know, right. I want something that produces, you know, an economic net cubic feet of helium per day for a number of years. Right. And, 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 really and it effectively pushes itself out of the ground. Yes. Yes. Okay. Exactly. Is there kind of technologies like you see in the oil and gas space, like SAG-D, I think it's called? Not, not, not so much like that. that per se. We're, we're, we're kind of in the conventional uh, reservoir space at the moment. So it's kind of basically a vertical well into, into the reservoir and a small completions job. But, you know, maybe down the road, we're thinking there may be opportunities to get into horizontal wells and fracking right. and that sort of thing, like you've seen in, in shale gas. But so far, we haven't found those opportunities. We're looking for them. But, you know, the, the conventional stuff, it, it wants to flow on its own. It flows very, very well if you mm. find the right reservoir. And that actually makes for a fairly cheap operation, too. It's very low cost. Okay. And so, so I think, yeah, your, your point there, then, you might see a high grade. You know, somebody comes out with a high, headline of a high grade, but it doesn't mean much unless you have good flow. Exactly. Exactly. What matters to me is, is net cubic feet of helium per day. And then for how many days or how many years? And uh, yeah. that's, that's when we can do our economics on something. Yeah. Yeah. There's a lot, there's a lot that goes into that, but uh, you know, we've got a very, very good reservoir engineer in our team and that's what he does. Yeah. It helps and model that out. I imagine that's going to become, you know, a big part of your, your work with the being a public company is having to educate some of these analysts. Yes. Yeah, absolutely. You know, we're, we're it's because helium so new is we're not quite sure what the reports look like. So we've been erring on the side of caution and, and planning to do things the same way as natural gas in terms of reserve reporting. But absolutely, we'll have to we'll have to start publishing those kind of reports on a regular basis, and then people can start doing their assessments of what we're actually worth. I got you. So you can draw the the parallels to the natural gas industry, but because this has been just such a kind of a, a nascent industry because of the reserves that have been available. Yeah. Yeah. Nobody really has put a lot of that in and, and we haven't seen the free market come in to really start to explore and, and build new wells. So yeah. it's, it's, it's really a bit of the wild west. A little bit, a little bit, which is kind of fun. You know, maybe we can have some influence on, you know, on how the regulators view it, you know, for the benefit of everyone. It's not, uh, you know, it's not to hide anything, but there's, there may be some opportunities here to do things that are, are proper fit for helium rather than yeah, right, force fit right. us into mining or something like that. Yeah. Um, yeah. How long, know. how dig, how deep are you going to dig your, uh, dig your mind to pull that helium out? Doesn't apply. Not quite, not quite yeah. like that. Exactly. Yeah. Okay. Exactly. Okay. So there's, there's some debate whether we straddle, you know, we sort of straddle mining in a way and we sort of straddle oil and gas in a way. And so, you know, we'll try to find the best fit there and work with them. So at the moment, we're we're erring on the on the side of caution and, and calling the our reserve planning is going to be similar to natural gas. Yeah, well, it sounds like the the most similar model in the industry. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Ah, very cool. The next is is kind of I think the logical question is knowing some of these applications and and some of what's happening in the industry. But how big is this this market when it comes to yeah, the buying of just a single gas. Yeah, yeah. Globally, uh, we're reading, you know, 15 to $18 billion US is kind of the retail end of it. You know, on the wholesale end, which is ours, it's a bit smaller. But, you know, so relative to an oil and gas market, it's it's quite a bit smaller, but it also requires a lot less capital. You know, we become very profitable at at a handful of wells 
uh, producing okay. rather than hundreds or thousands of wells. Okay. And uh, so it's a it's a bit of a step change, but in terms of return on capital, it's I would say it's much much stronger than oil and gas has been in, in decades. Well, so I, I'm going to jump around here because I want to. I've got a bunch, bunch of questions I want to ask, but the how is this actually produced? What I understand, I mean, I, I don't know if a lot of people know this, but I spent my pre-university days on a service rig in central Alberta. And so we would go in and either service the wells that had already yep. been drilled or come by and, and complete those wells. And with it came a ton of gas. And, and you know, I was always covered in diesel and was, you know, never called by my first name. It was always some four-letter word. It was just a, you know, a horrific but wonderful experience. That experience is what's framing my idea of how the helium world and how the exploration works. You go in and you're drilling similar to looking for, for oil and gas, but you're just testing for helium when it comes up. Is that kind of, yeah, yeah that's, how does it work? Yeah. Yeah. No, that's, that's, that's kind of the basics. You know, historically helium was, was a byproduct of certain oil and gas fields or certain gas fields in the U S so that reserve we talked about, there's a, there's an extremely large gas field down there and they had a small percentage of helium with it. And, uh, you know, they found it profitable enough to extract and, and put into the market that way. But like all reserves, they diminish over time. So to take a step back, helium is, is the product of decaying uranium and thorium from deep in the earth. Huh. And, and the helium comes off in that process. It's, it's, uh, it's produced out of it. And it, it's, as I said, it's very small and very light molecule. So it wants to find its way to the surface. And there are certain seals and traps in the in the layers of the earth that will capture it, similar to uh, the way it captured the way uh, natural gas is captured. Now that being said, what we're doing and what some of the smaller uh, upstarts for exploration are doing is trying to search for helium without the presence of hydrocarbons, so without natural gas or oil. And if typically it tends to be deeper, and the associated gas is nitrogen and you know, our modeling is that that is a more profitable approach in a lot of ways. You know, if you if you get an amount of natural gas, but not a high amount, you end up having to have all the same capital to produce and purify the natural gas and take it to market. You can't vent it. You can't. You burn can't it, just flare it off. Exactly. Yeah. And so, if we if we seek out and find the opportunities where it's associated with nitrogen, the nitrogen's most of most of the atmosphere. It's not a greenhouse gas. It's harmless. Okay, and, so you uh, don't we, have we any kind of, of that um, way. kind of carbon or greenhouse gas exactly taxes exactly. or things you gotta take care of there. Yeah, yeah. Oh, so we th- we see that as as you know a little more capital, a little less capital required, a little more capital efficient so model. The exploration model there is one where you have some you know some science and some some luck and are looking for certain kinds of deposits, certain kind of of geology, if you will. But is it is there the same kind of risks that you you know if you're drilling for for a well that you might hit water and the best thing you got is some dirty water coming out of the ground and and it's a few million bucks gone does that apply here or what's that risk profile look like when you go after these yeah it's it's mixed it's it's similar to natural gas in that you could hit a watery watery reservoir or something like that. You know, the other side of the coin is that it's it's a fairly young industry. And so I always think of it as, you know, we have modern technology with the level of exploration that's happened in the basin. 
of like maybe the 1940s or 50s. So there's lots of large, large structures out there. We're not aiming for for all necessarily the pinpoints that they are in natural gas these days in the conventional world. I mean, I'm ignoring the shale world. Okay. But uh, there's very, you know, there's there seems to be a lot of large structures out there to go after. So I think that kind of reduces the risk in a way. There, there, there can be incidences of, uh, of water associated with it. And eventually a lot of these reservoirs after, you know, X number of years of production, you will have water issues. That's kind okay. of normal for the life of them. But at this point, we're pretty optimistic that there's, we've got a, a number of good reservoirs in our, in our portfolio now, and we're building on that. And uh, well, they seem to be pretty good structures. Doesn't that tie in back to your experience with land management and basically understanding the the leases and, and what is out there in the different fields? I mean, you kind of got to have a bit of an inside scoop there to understand that what was there perhaps being drilled for oil before can also be indicative of what you're going after anyway. Yeah, exactly. You know, we've got what I call a very front end heavy team at the moment. We have, we have a lot of geologists and, and a geophysicist on our team. One of the big advantages about Canada is that we have to, as, as an oil and gas industry, we have had to put a lot of information into the public database. Mm. And that allows our, our team to build up really, really detailed models of, um, you know, the structures under the earth and how things, one well will, will be analogous from this area to another area. And you can yeah. kind, of, kind of figure out what's in between those things, for example. So that, that's been a real benefit to us. And it's allowed us to, to uh, I think, bring things along in a fairly rapid way. And what we've been doing with that as well is we've been, we've been applying that modeling that we've done across the border into the U.S. where there's a lot less data available, but we can work into the counties adjacent to the border, build our model up right. with that one, and then move to the adjacent county to that and continue to move on. It's kind of like the puzzles made north of the border and then just across that invisible line. Yeah. You can start to piece draw it all some. together. Yeah. Ah, cool. Yeah. Yeah, huh. exactly. So it's, it's, it's fascinating, right? And, and, you know, one of the things that's been a real challenge for our team and a, you know, one of the things they've really enjoyed is that it is so new and they get to build a lot of the modeling from scratch. Okay. You know, if you're, if you're in oil and gas, you know, you're working off of the, you're standing on the shoulders of hundreds of other geologists, for example, Yeah. you know, over the years and all of their efforts over the years and, and that, and that's good. You know, that's, that's a different type of challenge. This is more of a frontier type situation uh, hmm. where we can, we can take all of this data, but kind of in a new world as well. And so yeah. we've got the team really energized that they can uh, make their mark in a new world, so to speak. That's cool. Nice. You know, if you were to look at something like where Earth and, and China having, you know, the, the lion's share within their borders, from a, from a resource standpoint, where is the bulk of helium found? Is this a, a North American thing? Is it a global thing? Or is there certain areas that there's just more than not? Yeah, right now it's, uh, in terms of production, there's about, roughly speaking, there's about 40% from the U.S. About 35% comes from Qatar. And, uh, and then there's a couple other countries like Algeria and Russia have some reserves as well that they're producing. Algeria is probably third on the list. You know, the, the Qatar situation is they, they have a, a huge natural gas field over there and they liquefy it and ship it to Asia. And as part of the liquefaction process, they strip off their helium. Now, that being said, in terms of, in terms of, the, I think where you're going on this a little bit is a bit of a geopolitical question. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> right. And yeah, I, let's go with that. I've been beating, I've been beating the drum on this. You know, I think, I think the West has learned a lesson uh, with the rare earth minerals and the, and the sort of capturing of that industry that China has done. And, 
with the supply chain disruptions that we've seen in the last last year here. Yeah. I think a lot of people should feel a little bit vulnerable in that industry. Yeah, we and uh, perhaps been asleep at the wheel. Yeah. In some instances. Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. And so just just in the last few weeks, Canada and the US has added helium to their list of critical minerals. No kidding. And so I think there's some recognition there, obviously, at the at the at the highest levels. It's a little bit quiet. It hasn't worked its way out to uh, to the general public yet. But uh, you know, I'm gl- I was glad to see that those things were added to the list here recently. Yeah, it, it certainly is a geopolitical issue, and so I, I'm glad you touched on that because yeah, that was where I was going. But you, you nailed it on the head there. Wouldn't it, wouldn't it stand to reason that if helium, as you, as you told me earlier, is coming from kind of the decay of uranium and some other uh, some Thor- other. Yep. thorium okay yep. wouldn't you be re- or, you know searching for it in the same areas that there's large uranium deposits and and with with the, the potential of uranium heating up does that compete against where you're going the the answer is yes and no those those deposits that we have of uranium certainly would produce some helium what's what you need though is a trap of the trapping layer of rock on top of it Okay, and uh, and that doesn't often happen at layers at very shallow layers. So the the uranium that we would extract is fairly close to the surface, whereas the 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 layers that trap the helium that we're going after are fifteen, eighteen hundred meters below the earth, three thousand meters below the earth. Oh wow! You know, for our American friends, like you know, ten, twelve thousand feet. (laughs) Yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, Uh, that's quite a ways, quite quite a different, uh, quite far way down. Yeah. Yeah. Okay, I get it. so. So there, there wouldn't be a, a competing kind of match for, for not that not that we've seen. Not that yeah, we've seen. yeah. You know, there, sense, there may yeah. be something there that's uh, that's shallow, but it would be, it's probably in low concentrations. Okay, uh, probably something that's not economic for us to to extract. Once you've got the well drilled, and you've got, you know, I think another good question would maybe we can come to it is talking kind of grades of helium that are coming out, or you know what concentrations, but. Once you, you, you've got the hole drilled, you know that you've got helium there, what infrastructure is needed? Is there enough in play to, to be able to extract the gas and actually put it into market economically? Yeah, yeah it's, so it's a little different than natural gas. Again, there's specific facilities that, that, you need, that you need at the surface. There's a number of companies that produce this stuff, that manufacture it you know, based on your requirements. So it's not new technology, but you need a specific facility near your wells. But when once you've done the work to refine the helium down to you know a certain level of concentration, then it becomes a trucking issue instead. Huh. So you don't need you don't need a pipeline. You don't need to tap into some major cross country transmission line for natural gas or something like that. It's really transported by by semis. Okay. And yeah. So the the facilities are there's kind of three steps you can go into. The first is is like a membrane. Uh, and it just allows it's 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 a bit high tech, but it just allows the helium to pass through uh, these very very tiny holes in the membrane, and the helium's on the other side. You can extract that way, and then there's something called pressure swing adsorption, where the helium passes through. As I understand it, some crystals that are attract they attract the helium and nothing else, huh. and uh, then we purge it off those. And uh, the third the third step is to take it down to those liqui- liquefied levels, so cryogenic facilities. To take it down to the really, really cool oh, so you'd actually like liquefied natural gas equivalent, basically. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Now we we can do that. We're not positive we're going to do that ourselves. We might just might sell it at a at a different uh, state, an right. orgaceous state, and and sell it on the trucks that way. It comes down to capital efficiency again. So 
There's, yeah, there's economies of scale. That, that, yeah, that you got to make sure you know see see what uh, what makes economic sense there. Yeah. yeah. So with all this, then I mean, it's it's what are going to be some of the catalysts for this to really take off? Do you think? Like, what should be we be looking for? I think you know you said there's a geopolitical uh, awareness that seems to to come. What else? You know, I think the, I think on the buy side, I think the people understand it's it's more on the investor side, really kind of getting a, an investor level awareness of the opportunities here will help fund the industry on our side, on the exploration side. You know, the, we do many, many investor presentations, of course, and yeah. in quite a few of them. Pony. Yeah, for sure. It's, it's normal stuff and it's good. We, we enjoy meeting everybody, but you know, we probably spend 20, 25% of our first conversations just explaining what helium is and why we use it. And mm. You know, and that and that's fine, but it takes a while for people to become comfortable with a with a brand new industry like that. But as people understand it more and they see the opportunities, then the then the investment opportunities come with it. Sorry, another question. <laughs> they're, they're popping into my head as we go. Yeah, it's all good. Um, when it comes to the use, like what what's the shelf life of of helium? When you when you put it into an MRI machine or you're using it to create semiconductors or in the in the production of them. How long does this last? Is it the kind of thing they fill a chamber and then they got to open that chamber and boom, it goes under the atmosphere and yeah, it has a slow. Base, most things have a slow leak to them. Helium escapes everything you put it into, and I, I don't know if I could give you a specific sort of recharge time for MRIs or something like that. But I know in uh, in terms of shipping it, we've we've looked at you know the opportunities to ship overseas, for example, and the numbers we hear are that there's about forty to forty five days from a liquid state that you can ship something. And, and then after that, the leakage out of the uh, container kind of overcomes the economics. Oh, interesting. So, so there's actually like a, a spoilage, if you will. Yeah, yeah, exactly, exactly. And so, and, and you know, when helium leaves a container, it hits the atmosphere and it's so light, it runs to the top of the atmosphere and then the solar winds strip it off. And so it's gone forever. Hmm. So, which is kind of interesting, right? That, you know, you, you, you might think it'd be something you could just extract from the atmosphere, like, you know, oxygen or, so, or that, but it's, so it's how do you, truly, what do you mean by this? It's stripped off. Like so, solar winds strip it off. How, what do you mean by that? It, it's, it, it goes to the very highest levels of the atmosphere. So right on the edge of space. Yeah. I'm no astrophysicist, but <laughs> <laughs> there's, you know, we're, we're under bombardment from the sun from a number of things and they will strip off you know, molecules off the top of the atmosphere without, you know, without something containing it, I guess. Okay. Um, heavier molecules will stay. That's why we have an atmosphere, but the very lightest ones will leave. Yeah. Oh, fascinating. Yeah. Well, man, I mean, what else are we missing here? Because it's, it's, uh, I'm curious, what, what do, what are other investors asking you? Yeah. You know, it's, it really comes down to, a basic familiarity, right? So if, if the, if the investors are familiar with oil and gas, as we tell them, it looks more like conventional natural gas from say 20 years ago, you know, the, the, their comfort level goes up in terms of what we do. Every, every discovery we make or, and, and anybody else makes will look like a natural gas reservoir. It'll, it'll deplete over time. And so you're on this exploration cycle, you know, we have to have to have our, uh, we're smart geoscientists continuing to find replacement reserves, but a good, a good reservoir is notionally 10, 15 years before it's going to run out, maybe okay. longer. Yeah. You know, so we'll, our intention is to ramp up here in the next year 
and then you know continue to build but do it at a, at a reasonable pace where we have uh 20 years reserve life and try to you know try to build some steady cash flow for our investors rather than uh drill up everything in the first year okay okay and that sort of thing right so we're trying to build up a good asset base and and then just build yeah. the value from there yeah yeah exactly so we're we're trying to look you know in some ways familiar to to oil and gas investors in a sense um what will be unfamiliar to them is the margins that we get you know pretty juicy okay and, so you know, so can you give us ballparks or even comparisons yeah like you know natural gas i think at the moment is kind of $2.50, let's say US per thousand cubic feet. Wholesale helium is about $280. Hmm. Uh, so it's rough, you know, you're kind of in that hundred, hundred times more, more <laughs> Just a hundred. Just a hundred, right? Yeah. And okay. that catches people's attention. You know, yeah. now we don't find it in the same quantities and that sort of thing. But in terms of the, the returns, like depending on how you finance things, if you look at, at just a well, you know, the, that well could pay for itself in three to six months would be something. Typical. No kidding. Yeah. Yeah. So very nice returns, right? Yeah. It depends how you finance your facilities, but if you're looking at the well alone, that's. Yeah. Now, what is the CapEx for, for a facility? Is it like the kind of thing where you drill a good reserve or a great, good well, and are you going to build a, a facility right next to it kind of thing? Is that how this works? And then you just load up a truck from there? Yeah. You know, ideally you'd have, you'd have a number of wells feeding a single facility. Okay. Yeah. You know, I'd, I'd probably draw on one of one of the other companies that's in in the business right now. They've they just turned a facility on, and they're producing. You know, from what I've got out of the papers, they're a private company, so I'm kind of gleaning out of the papers. But I'll use their example that they're pulling roughly a truckload a day out of there, and they, yeah, they said they spent about thirty million dollars on their facility. Okay. I suspect that might include their drilling as well, but. Mm. You know, we'll and see. then, so a truckload a day. What's what would the value of a truck at today's spot price be? Roughly about forty thousand bucks, let's say. Okay, something like that. So it's it's pretty decent money. Yeah, yeah. You know, you start you start doing these. You know, that's that's one facility. You know, I intend to have several. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> good man, good man. <laughs> so. Well, it's it's neat to hear. You seem like an interesting guy. You, you've you've been in the, in this industry a long time. You know, something I like to ask is. Uh, what do you read? What do you, where do you get your information? What keeps you kind of, yeah. What, what do you like to read? Yeah. Yeah, for sure. I'm, I'm a solid nonfiction guy. Uh, okay. Sure. Yeah. <laughs> so, <laughs> you know, these days it's a lot of industry reports and that sort of thing. But in, in terms of books, probably the last good one I read was uh, called Venture Deals uh, oh, yeah, from Brad, Brad Feld and, and John, Jason Mendelson there. And yeah. I took that course in the fall with them. They offer a free course with it. And, oh, no way. And, uh, yeah, it's, it's, it was, it was interesting, you know, cause yeah. it, you know, it's like a lot of things you can, you can read the manual, but when you actually do it, it's a little different experience, yeah. right. And it sinks in a little better. So this, this thing came with some group work and I met some, met some good people from, uh, around Canada and the U S doing some stuff. group work and you'll have to check out, uh, Brad's episode. I interviewed him uh, oh, good. maybe yeah. a year ago and, and really good episode. We didn't get too much into the details there, but he spilled the beans on a couple of deals where perhaps he, he should have, should have invested. Yeah, uh, one of them being Fitbit, you know, and you had a good story around there, and then also about mental health. Um, yeah. And I thought that was pretty interesting. You look at somebody who's got more money than God, you think that all would be easy, but no. Yeah. So, yeah, um, excellent. Yeah. Oh, that's cool, man. Yeah, good book. Good book. Any final thoughts for the audience? You know, first of all, I appreciate the opportunity to speak with you. It's been a lot of fun. You know, I hope people follow the Avanti story a little bit. We uh, we're doing our best to be the industry leader 
we're revamping the website here. We'll have a blog site up there and we'll have lots of articles and, and information about the industry on there on a, on a very regular basis. So it'll be, um, you know, something about us, but also about the industry. You know, we, Excellent. you know, we're, we're big believers. We want to see everybody win in terms of all the explorers out there. And so yeah. that'll happen as people understand the industry better and, and uh, there's more access to capital. Great. Good stuff, man. Well, Chris, thanks so much for making the time. I appreciate it. Yeah, it's my pleasure. It's been fun. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Insider's Guide to Finance. If you enjoyed what you heard, please share this with your friends and colleagues so they can benefit as well. You can also subscribe and leave a review on iTunes or the Play Store. Your support there is really appreciated. For future episodes, if there's a question, topic, or specific person you'd like me to interview, feel free to reach out. You can connect with me on LinkedIn or through my website at creativereturn.ca.